Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm a philosopher at the University of South Carolina, and I'm a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. As always, I'd like to thank my sponsors for their support of this podcast. First and foremost, the Institute for Human Ecology, which underwrites this podcast. The IHE is an academic institute committed to research into the conditions vital for human flourishing. To learn more about the IHE and all the events and programs they put on, please go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And I'd also like to thank The Lamp and The Point magazines for underwriting my Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com slash to sign up to be a monthly patron. As a $10 monthly patron, you get a free digital subscription to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. The Lamp is a bi-monthly lay-edited journal of Catholic letters. To read some of their fabulous content, please go to thelampmagazine.com. And The Point is a magazine of philosophical writing. You can check out the latest spring issue at thepointmag.com. I am very pleased to get to episode 59 of the podcast, in which I chat with Randy Boyagoda, professor of English at the University of Toronto, about his latest novels, Original Prim and Dante's Indiana. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. Just a few quick notes on today's episode. One is that um, there's a landscaper right outside my window who is uh, whacking down a tree. And so if you hear a lot of sawing, please just try to find that to be delightful rather than really annoying because there's nothing that I can do about it. My landscaper was supposed to come last week and was delayed by rain. I'm selling my house. So I currently have landscapers and painters and contractors here. So so anyway, that's just a side note in case there is noise. Today's guest is Randy Boyagoda. Randy is a novelist, a critic, a professor of English, a vice provost, and a father, and apparently knows my brother. Welcome to the podcast, Randy. Thanks very much, Jen. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. Uh, I've been trying to get you on for a while, and my life's been crazy. And finally, my producer just took over my scheduling. (laughs) And look what (laughs) happened as a result. I know. Great. He shows a time with lots of Dantean demands upon you. Well, that's, yeah, but that's kind of, kind of the way my life is now, but that's okay. We're going to roll with it. So my opening question for you, Randy, is actually how on earth do you have time to write fiction? Because you are a full-time professor and you do administrative work and you're a dad. Like, how does this, how do you, how do you find time? Are you just incredibly disciplined? I think that's probably the most immediate answer. I think maybe the the fuller answer, though, would be that from graduate school onward, I have been told by my, by then, by my professors, that I couldn't do both, that I would have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And I've never had to make a stark choice like that between my life as an academic and my life as a novelist, as you full well know. 
at different points in professional life and family life, there are different ways to be disciplined. In other words, I am disciplined, but there are different mm-hmm. ways to do it. And so I can imagine, I can remember, for example, you know, in the, I've written, I've written four novels, more accurately, I've published four novels. I've written many more than that, but I've published four novels. And I can remember in the period after my first novel and my second novel, writing uh, with a, a newborn baby sleeping across my, uh, my wrists, basically, because that was the time I had, because my wife is finishing her doctorate at the same time. And this was that, you know, she was at the on campus and I was doing this. There were periods of time where I would get up at four o'clock in the morning and work for two hours before everybody else woke up. And then mm-hmm. and this was known knowledge at the university. I would sleep on my desk in the afternoons for a little while. I don't have to do that now. Our children are older. And my approach to novel writing in relation to my life as an academic is different now as it should be. I don't need, I shouldn't get up at 4 a.m. at this point. But instead, it's more like when I can find the opportunity, I can get right into my writing. Put differently, I don't need a cup of tea and the right kind of pen and paper and the right kind of mm-hmm. FM classical music. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right now, I could hang up this call and get, I know exactly where I am in my work. Final thing I'll just say, Jen, is that I always like to think of my academic work as important as it is, as invested in it as I, as I am, as my side gig. I'm a full-time writer. Everything is secondary to that professionally. And mm-hmm. so this morning I was in a budget meeting for 90 minutes, and I would say I spent a good part of that taking detailed notes about the novel I'm writing right now. Right, right. That's amazing. I mean, I just, I, I, I have, I have a little bit harder. I know exactly what you mean when you say, like, I can just, I can just get right into work and do it. I mean, for me, that's just a necessity. Like if I was ever, I had four kids in grad school. So if I was ever going to finish grad school, Mm -hmm. I, like if I had five minutes, I was going to get some work done. Sure, of course. (laughs) Right? Because like it all adds up, but Whereas, like unit- whereas, you probably know this person as well as I do, I can think of at least one colleague here in Toronto whom I've known well since the early 2000s, and every time I see him, he says the same thing. You know, one of these days, I'm going to write that novel, Randy. One of these days. Mm-hmm. He's just so busy, right? Right. And if you're, quote, just so busy, you're never going to write that novel. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going to write a novel. But, but also, I'm not trying. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like that's... That's beyond my ability. Anyway, it's very impressive. I just have one follow-up question about sure, this. Sure. Like when you were pre-tenure, yes. were you, I mean, were you focused more on fiction mm-hmm. or, I, I guess maybe the question is like, how does your fiction, like how does your university yeah. handle your fiction? Because like my university doesn't really know how to handle the work that I do that doesn't mm-hmm. look like research. So like my podcast sure. and then a lot of popular essays that I write, they sort of recognize that this takes time and effort and reflects to some extent my, you know, mm-hmm. my scholarly life, my intellectual life, but they also don't quite know how to count it. Of course. And counting matters at a university. It does. For lots of reasons. When I, when I took up my first academic appointment, this was at a place called Ryerson University, now Toronto Metropolitan University. I was hired yeah, as a I've professor. Seen, I was I've hired some as a friends professor at Ryerson. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, I, I was hired as a professor of American Studies. 
And the my first week there, my first novel, Governor of the Northern Province, was uh, nominated for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, Canadian for National Book Award or Pulitzer, I guess you could say. Oh, awesome. And so immediately, there was a lot of public attention on me as a novelist. And I was really grateful for what I heard from uh, the chair of my department. And she said, Randy, this is all really great. The university is so excited about all this. But you were hired as a professor of American studies. And you need to keep that in mind. And I agree with her. I am not, mm -hmm. never will be, a professor of creative writing. God bless you if you are, but that's not me. I'm an Americanist. And so in that context, I have pursued research, graduate supervision in modern American studies, global American literary studies, global American studies, I should say, uh, over the last, you know, however many years. I will fully acknowledge that beyond graduate supervision at this point, I'm no longer publishing in a peer-reviewed way in, in American studies, in transnational American studies, I guess would be the, the nature of the field mm -hmm. currently, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's a moment where you can say to yourself, okay, it's the one too many. And mm -hmm. in the meantime, I think I discerned, as I suspect is the case for you, that while, that while I can certainly contribute in my field of specialization, the work I do publicly in my essay writing and in public commentary in a variety of ways and through my novels is measurably more significant than the work I was doing as an Americanist. And yeah. so, again, beyond my responsibilities at the level of graduate supervision and graduate teaching, I would say that I've been able to put more of my attention into my work as a novelist uh, and then a, you know, a cultural commentator, an essayist, a book critic, as to how the university regards it. It's a very good question. I think maybe the, the inflection point came after my the publication of my biography of Father Richard John Newhouse, a name, Jen, I know that you would know. And that mm -hmm. came out in 2015. And that book came out with uh, a random house imprint. Now, when I was working on it, I, ha I had this kind of decision to make, whether to go to a university press with it or whether to go with a trade press. And I made the decision, which struck me as ke in keeping with Richard John Newhouse's own engagement in religion and public life with a publicly available account of religion and its relationship to American democracy, that going the trade route made more sense than the university press route. Yeah. And that, again, that was an inflection point for me, right? And then having spent that much time on someone else's life, it was then around then that I began to write um, probably more intentionally autobiographically informed fiction, which I can connect to my interest in religion and literature, the Catholic intellectual tradition, even, I think, to my, my teaching and my writing when it comes to American literature and contemporary fiction, the university likes what I do, but I suspect it would have a different view of it if I were not a fully-fledged and committed member of my department as a graduate faculty member in American literature. So mm -hmm. what I think, what I, I, probably like you, I'm, I, I'm asked this question a lot by early career faculty, pre-tenure, and by graduate students who might want to do more than only write a monograph Mm -hmm. I hear you. I encourage it. I'm a I'm someone who's done that, but there's something to be said for establishing your credentials and your standing within your field with your colleagues on their terms, right? Mm -hmm. And then doing what you want to do after that. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I agree with that completely. I mean, I kind of <clears throat> stumbled into the more public domain after having, you know, as it were, done the work. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say, sorry, can we just say one other thing? Yeah, please. Um, because I think there's also a f- an easy binary that we need to, I think, get rid of. I couldn't write the fiction I'm writing right now, let's say a novel about a Dante theme park in opioid-ravaged America. I couldn't do mm-hmm. that were I'm not an Americanist, were it not for the writing and the research I, and the graduate teaching I have done and undergraduate teaching I have done in modern American and contemporary literature. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, it is, yeah, well, oh, this no, is that's... and then there's that. They're, yeah. they're integrated. Yeah. Okay. Well, they're very integrated for me as well. And that was going to be my next question is, are they integrated? So the answer mm-hmm. is yes. And I'm not surprised, but just, just for the sake of our listeners, but also I'm sure. curious, like what, I mean, you say you're an Americanist. Can you be more specific about what exactly that means in your case? Like, like sure. who do you work on for that, that would be explicitly coded as academic? I would point to my work on writers like, William Faulkner, Ralph Ellison, and in a specifically U.S. context, Salman Rushdie, um, as kind of the the main trio that have remained writers of interest to me as an Americanist. Uh, My most recent graduate seminar in in our department here was called The Great Transnational American Novel, in which I looked at, with my students, at Moby Dick, we looked at Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner, we looked at this fantastic more recent novel by Lucy Ellman called Duck's New Berryport, thousand-page single-sentence novel about an Ohio housewife. Modern American literature and culture are of, of great interest to me. Modern American intellectual life, the New York critics I would point to. And then more more recently, I think I would just say that my interest in post-war American writing and figures uh, including Saul Bellow, Flannery O'Connor, with a big asterisk as a novelist, I'll add eventually. Uh, <laughs> these would all be writers who I would say that I'm, I'm generally speaking, very interested in. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised to hear you mention Flannery, just because you wrote that essay in first. Thing, yeah, I know, you were I know. so sick of Flannery. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm sick of Flannery. I was sick of Flannery O'Connor as a novelist, not not as a reader, not as someone who supervises you know, senior theses on her work or teaches her work, in that context, she's inexhaustible. But what's exhausting is uh, meeting people who like Catholic fiction and only ask me if I've read Flannery O'Connor. That's exhausting. Yeah, no, I I understand why you say that. I mean, this was an essay that you wrote for First Things. I think it was in 2013 called Faith and Fiction. Yes. And it was, a, you know, it was a little bit of a manifesto kind mm-hmm. of trying to say what you thought the value of fiction really was mm-hmm. such that only reading dead people would be a mistake. So what, yes. I mean, maybe you could just summarize a summary of the manifesto, like what, from your point of view, sure. why should we have, what does it mean to have faith in fiction? Right. Like what's its value? Let me begin by saying you're the first person I've, I've spoken about this essay dozens of times in so many different contexts. And you're the first person who's, I think, accurately identified the fact that it was a manifesto. It wasn't just a rant. And it was me at a point in my own writing career where I wanted to begin writing more avowedly and intentionally as a believing Catholic and finding myself incredibly lonely in in, in this sense, in the sense that uh, that loneliness is more my fault than anything else. I'll say something else about that later. But finding myself either chatting with people 
for whom Catholic writing died when Flannery O'Connor died. And then we just look backwards to the usual, you know, her, Chesterton, Tolkien, blah, blah, blah. Or Catholic experience figures in modern terms in a kind of secondary way. It matters insofar as it informs immigrant and ethnic experience, right? The kind of smells and bells and interesting weird folk practices specific to, let's say, Sri Lankan Catholicism. And it seemed to me that there had to be a third way, a way that we could write fiction about recognizable contemporary persons whose lives bear some resemblance to the believers who came before them and whose lives bear some resemblance to the non-believers around them. I've, I've ranted when I'm not ranting about Flannery O'Connor, I've ranted about Marilyn Robinson. That Marilyn Robinson, as much as I love her fiction, I love reading it, I love writing about it, I love teaching it, but she makes it easy on her contemporary readers insofar as religious belief in Marilyn Robinson's fiction is largely confined to people who lived 75 years ago in small towns in rural America. Mm-hmm. Well, of course I could believe in God if life were quote-unquote that easy. Now, we know better, of course, when we read mm-hmm. Marilyn Robinson, but there's something quietly exotic about it, right? We have no concerns with religious experience if it figures in the deep past or it's non-Judeo-Christian. In mm-hmm. both cases, it's exotic, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I was interested in was contemporary, a contemporary setting, contemporary characters, contemporary challenges, a university shutting down and having to open up a satellite campus elsewhere, let's say, contemporary challenges. And the person responding to these lives as if God exists and lives as if God exists. And the terms for that existence and that experience exceed his own conceiving of them and are part of a greater tradition and set of practices. And the tensions created then by religious belief in that context are great for a writer. You know, again, I'll just say one other thing. You have had this kind of conversation many times. I'm sure many of your listeners have had this conversation. If you're a religious believer, someone comes up and says, oh, I wish, you know, I wish I believed in God. Everything would just be so much easier. Find me any religious believer in 2023 who thinks that because of belief in God, things are easier. Oh my goodness, are they harder? And then again, what a great opportunity for a, a novel. I know. I always joke with people. I'm like, you have to understand that it's actually kind of torture. Yes. <laughs> kind of <look> at me. <laughs> but I mean, I do think that there's a kind of moral therapeutic deism that sort of passes mm-hmm. for religious belief mm-hmm. that is a kind of, it is kind of religion in, in a very comforting therapeutic mode but that's not of course what you're talking about you're talking no about. but that's but that's out there you're talking about christian smith's conceiving of it right the mm-hmm. sociologist yeah. of the day. and yeah. absolutely we see this just last week at the newman center here at the university of toronto i gave a talk on moral therapeutic deism and the 2017 adaptation of stephen king's novel it the movie version oh and I was basically yeah the 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 religious sensibility that governs that movie is moral therapeutic deism. Believe in yourself, work together, right? There's a, mm-hmm. there's a way in which you can see that kind of featuring everywhere. And then the hard part, again, in that world is to cut through with a sense of the greater stakes of belief for yourself 
in relation to your loved ones, in relation to God. Just again, mm-hmm. the stakes are higher. And why wouldn't a writer want that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that talk available, by the way? Like, is there a YouTube of that somewhere? Yes, there is. I'll send it to you okay. after we chat. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes because I um, I myself was disappointed with that that new version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually am a fan of the original book. I mean, it's mm-hmm. obviously weird, but I read it when I was young and it just sure, kind of same. is part of this memory for me. Anyway. Well, part of, yeah, Jen, yeah. part of that memory, which is one that I long for, is not, is not so much the ideas and the themes of Stephen King's hit, but it's having the time and space and frankly, the capacity to lose yourself in a thousand pages, right? Mm -hmm. Just that the way in which you can just, when you are younger, read and read and read and say what you will about Stephen King, but his fiction can certainly sustain that experience. Yeah. So I I think we're, yeah, I mean, we're basically the same age. So solidly Gen X. And Mm -hmm. I think I read Stephen King from like fourth to sixth grade, maybe mm-hmm. third to sixth grade. I basically read all of it, some of which mm-hmm. was pretty inappropriate. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but Beverly you know. scenes in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did. I mean, I loved it. It was just weird and grotesque, and I, I just I couldn't put it down. Anyway, so I want to talk about this trilogy that you are two thirds of the way done with. So there's Original Prin and Dante's Indiana, both of which I have read and and just loved. I mean, I really loved them. I wasn't sure what to expect when I got these. But I read Dante's Indiana first. Yes, that's um, right. Because you had sent it to me. And then also I was doing this seminar with the Clay Game Institute at Penn on Dante's Indiana, which was really fantastic. And then I wanted to get on the podcast and you were like, well, you should definitely read Original Prince. So I read mm-hmm. it second. And the thing that just really struck me about these two novels is that, I mean, they're really funny. They're so Thank funny. You. They're just like laugh out loud <laughs> funny. Uh, but they're also serious, like really serious substantive mm-hmm. novels. And I'm always impressed with somebody who can pull that off. You know, like really substantive, serious themes was also just hilarious. It's also just genre busting. Like, I don't know how to describe your novels. I mean, I guess I would say they're satire, but that feels like something is missing. I mean, how would you describe them? I'm just going to let you describe this project. Well, I would say that... Maybe the origin story for original print would help us get there, Jen. Uh, when I finished original print in its first completed version, I sent it to my editor. And he responded, congratulations, Randy. You have written a very funny 200-page comic novel in the tradition of the mid-century English writers of, of last century. The problem is it's taken you 600 pages to do it. And the first version of original print was 600 pages long, okay? Oh, wow. And what are we at? You've got it in front of you. I can see it. What is it, 220? Yeah, about 221. Yeah. And so what what he suggested was that I was making a category error. I thought I was writing a John Irving novel, one of these big, rambling, rollicking, madcap stories. And he said, what you're doing, I think, what he said to me is what you're doing, I think, is actually writing a sharp, 
fast satire, a comic novel. He also said that I was writing a novel that made faith and family life active elements in a way that he hadn't seen in a while. And he was really encouraging of me really doing more in that area than less. Mm-hmm. And point is that when he said this to me, Jen, I was outraged. I said, what are you talking about? I gave you 600 pages of solid gold. And he said, <laughs> he said, listen, don't change a thing in your novel, but I want you to read the following books. And he gave me a series of novels by Kingsley Amos, by Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh, uh, V.S. Naipaul, Beryl Bainbridge. And he said, just read these books. And then tell me that this isn't really what you're trying to do with this novel. Mm-hmm. And so I did read them. Mm-hmm. And he was right. And so then original print goes from 600 pages to 200 pages. But then he said, and the publisher backed him up on this, he said, clearly there's more here that you want to do, right? Uh, the way the publisher put it to me is he said, we think you found your rabbit. And he was referencing the rabbit mm-hmm. angstrom character in John Updike's yeah. novel. Mm-hmm. For our listeners, Prin is a bike-riding Sri Lankan Catholic English professor working at a failing Catholic college in downtown Toronto. He has a wife from Milwaukee and four daughters and uh, deranged, divorced, aging parents. Mm-hmm. And I am not Prin, but I could successfully inhabit his life and see the world through his eyes, I guess well, you could I, say. Yeah, I was going to ask how autobiographical it is because... Mm-hmm. Like, don't you have four daughters? Yes. And you're an English professor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. And you're an English professor and you're Sri Lankan and you're Catholic. And, you yeah. Know, and right? I ride a bike and my parents are divorced and they're kind of deranged. Yes. Right. Okay. Didn't know that last bit, but good to know. They're not going <laughs> to listen to this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> or they would agree anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. So, so it, I mean, that was a self-conscious decision. Sure. Here's the thing. Two things matter to this. I heard repeatedly from people about my first two novels, and then my editor for those first two novels put it to me very directly. She said, Randy, you know, your first two novels demonstrate that you're very smart, that you've read a lot, that you can, you can perform these things, but you're nowhere in them. And then when people meet you, you're very, you know, there's a lot going on in your life. You're a very full person to meet, but you're nowhere in your novels except as a performance. Mm-hmm. Allow yourself into your books more. Then I spent you know, four years working on the life of Richard John Newhouse. I spent four years invested in someone else's life. Mm-hmm. So I think those two things came together. I wrote that manifesto about faith and fiction. And I decided to in- allow myself imaginatively to, to draw on these experiences in a clearly, obviously, a fictionalized context, but then to see what, what kind of story I could tell as a result. And then that leads to original print which is about this main character whose university is facing a shutdown unless it opens a satellite campus in the Middle East. And Prin, on the far side of a prostate cancer diagnosis, is invited to go to the Middle East with his sexy ex-girlfriend from graduate school, who's now a <laughs> consultant mm-hmm. uh, for universities, mm-hmm. to open the, um, the satellite campus. And he convinces himself that God wants him to go to save his university, to continue supporting his marriage, sorry, his family. And his marriage is safe. Why? Because... He's been rendered impotent by prostate cancer. So what could go wrong? Right. And the novel begins eight months before he became a suicide bomber. Prin went to the zoo with his family. And it kind of goes from there. And I, I have 221 pages to explain how Prin becomes a suicide bomber. Uh, he survives this experience. And then that takes us into the second novel, Dante's Indiana, which is not a comic novel, I would say. It's funny, certainly. 
but where I'd say original print was a comic novel, I think Dante's Indiana, at least in terms of how I approach it, was darker and maybe a little more serious. And I was maybe reordering the humor to wanting to make sense of the world, of our current world through kind of a Dantean, from a Dantean perspective. As a result of that, you know, the Divine Comedy has, certainly has a little bit of humor in it, but it's not ultimately funny. So too, uh, Dante's Indiana, Prince has returned from his experience in the Middle East. He's at odds with his faith. He's at odds with his family life, with his wife. They're kind of separated. He's living in a condo with his parents. And then out of the blue, because he's kind of a minor disaster celebrity, the professor who survived the suicide bombing, um, he's invited by an evangelical millionaire to move to Terre Haute, Indiana, and become a kind of go-between for this project of building a Dante theme park in Terre Haute. And then that's mm -hmm. the premise. Print accepts it kind of because he's at loose lens otherwise. And he regards it also as a way to get closer to his wife and children to find a way to bring them home. They're living, meanwhile, in Milwaukee. And then he gets more and more invested, as you know, in the situations of the people he encounters uh, as part of the Dante theme park. Yeah, and and so it's a trilogy. So what? Where is this going? Are you are you at liberty to say it all? Well, I think what I'm at liberty to say is a couple of things. One is that heaven isn't funny, right? If you <laughs> if you think about it, there are really funny parts of Dante's Inferno and Dante's Purgatory. There's nothing funny in heaven. Yeah. And so as a comic novelist, this poses a challenge to me because where does comedy come from? It comes from the gaps, right, Jen? The gap between who you think you are and who people think you are. The gap between what you wanted someone to take from your words and, and what they took from them. There's mm -hmm. all, you know, there's gaps are where, where comedy comes. There is no gap in heaven. You made mm -hmm. it. You're there, right? Mm -hmm. You are seeing and being seen by God. And so I'm going to take a little more time to make sense of what the Paradiso component of this print trilogy involves. It's also the case, and my wife is very encouraging in me in this respect, that at some level, people who write fast and often are annoying. Mm -hmm. And so she suggested, you know, you know, take your time and make this work. So in other words, it isn't something, oh, here's another madcap print adventure. He's going mm -hmm. to the, he's going to Mars with Elon. And, and that's paradise, right? <laughs> the, the idea, I mean, it's not a bad idea, but... Take a I mean, time. I would read it. Just, I'm yeah, just thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so yeah. that's as much as I'll say for now. Well, that's good because I think it kind of segues for me into this question of how these novels relate to the Divine Comedy. Yes. Because I read Dante's Indiana first, mm -hmm. it was like really clear in the sense that that novel is really richly infused with all kinds of Dante themes and mm -hmm. illusions. And you just get the sense that this novel is really in dialogue with the Divine Comedy in interesting mm -hmm. ways. I don't really get that sense so much with original Prin. Mm -hmm. So please correct me if I'm wrong about that. But if the idea is that, okay, well, Prin's in hell. <laughs> if, if the first one's about sin and hell... Mm -hmm. And the second one's about purgatory. And so the last one will be about paradise. That kind of raises the question about how we're to understand Prin and his experiences. Because, of course, Dante the Pilgrim, like, is really in, in hell. 
purgatory and heaven in the sense that he's being guided Mm -hmm. by various figures. But that doesn't seem to be the case for Prin. Like, he doesn't Mm. seem to be guided in the same way. Or if he is, like, how does that work out? Yeah, so this is all just a convoluted way of saying, asking you to elaborate more on how you conceive of the relationship between these novels and that poem. I think you're right that Dante's Indiana, title onward, is a novel that is consciously and explicitly in dialogue, is a great way you put it, in dialogue with the Divine Comedy. And what was hard for me with that, and this is where sometimes the challenge of being an academic comes in, probably earlier versions of Dante's Indiana were very academically responsible. You know, they, I, I, was, I was being way too careful to ensure that there were certain structural parallels at various points, because this is the purgatory one, right? Blah, blah, blah. And it was awful. It was stilted. <laughs> and yeah. as academics, we have to be responsible. As a novelist, you absolutely can't be responsible that way. It, mm-hmm. it, and it deadens on the page. You all know this. Everyone who's listening knows this. You can read a book and you think, wow, I can feel the research. And you don't want to feel research when you're writing a no- when you're reading a novel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with so so really, what happened was I had this moment when I was writing Dante's Indiana where I, I kind of broke the scaffolding. If you think about the Divine Comedy, the scaffolding, which is not really true to Dante, and instead just embraced the fact that I was living in the Dante comedic universe, you know, mm-hmm. and that really opened things up. With original print, I would say that. Dante was there, but not nearly in as intentional and explicit a way, but rather in a kind of substratum way. In that, I think for any serious religiously engaged writer in in life today, it's almost impossible not to be responding in some way to Dante if you're trying to represent human suffering and the stakes for getting beyond it, getting beyond yourself, I guess you could say, and, and doing so imaginatively, elaborately, provocatively, right? That's all, I think, ultimately stems from Dante in a lot of ways for, for the great majority of us. Um, you know, I'll tell a side story, but it, it gets to your question. When, when you're writing a novel, when you're ready to start publishing it, as you know, there's always this need for blurbs, and you always look around for blurbs, and you hope for the best. Mm-hmm. And I was very... Fortunate that Salman Rushdie agreed to offer a blurb for original print. Salman and I know each other a little bit. And when I sent him the novel, he wrote back and he said, you know, this is great. It's so obvious to me that, you know, you're riffing on Penin, the Nabokov novel. Mm. And in my head, I thought, what are you talking? Of course. No, yeah, yeah, of course. This is all about Nabokov. Yes, absolutely, Salman. (laughs) Thank you for noticing that. And then, you know, thereafter... And forevermore, this is a novel that responds to Nabokov because that's what someone Rushdie saw in it and who's going to disagree? Right. Um, when okay. Original Print was published, a lot of the reviews pointed to the kind of infernal qualities, events in the novel, right? Mm-hmm. The novel ends with a lot of fire, as you know. Mm-hmm. And people couldn't help but read that in Dantean terms, perhaps because of my profile as a Catholic writer, or perhaps because it's just alive and there on the page. Mm-hmm. And, and so in a sense, 
I, I wouldn't say I reverse engineered my way into a Dante trilogy, but what was, I think, implicit with the assumptions I was making in writing original print became obviously explicit with Dante's Indiana, and then we'll find their completion with the third book. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, is one way of hearing that just to say that, you know, your conception of the relationship to the Divine Comedy is itself evolving? Yes, as it should be with, with all great books. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Re- I read Middlemarch every five years. Every time I yeah. read it, I have a different relationship to that book. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. I mean, one thing that just to pick up on one remark you made, which is <laughs> about how Christian writers, Catholic writers have to have to, in some sense, be in negotiation with Dante. Mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking, like, writers like Flannery O'Connor, but also I'll throw in someone still living and writing, Donna Tartt. Both of these Catholic women talk about the need for indirection mm-hmm. because, and Flannery's more explicit about it, but I think Donna Tartt and some of her writing on this is it kind of amounts to the same thing, which is that you know, since we're no longer writing in Christendom for Christendom. Mm-hmm. So we can't, and, and especially like our readers aren't, mm-hmm. aren't typically Christian, right? I mean, people who have faith in fiction mm-hmm. right. <laughs> uh, don't tend to be religious believers, right? Right. And so the question is like, how are you supposed to communicate a Christian vision to that skeptical secular audience. Yes. And I think both of these women were in different ways very committed to the idea that well it couldn't be in the straightforward Dante way, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just assume that they will understand all this stuff. Yeah, right. Um and yeah, so I wondered how that figures in mm-hmm. to h- how you conceive of this project. Great question. I would say that my, what I have discerned as my vocation is to find opportunities to draw on the sacred in secular contexts. I'm at a secular university. I publish in secular places. The majority of my criticism in public writing is for secular outlets. And whenever it's relevant, uh, I openly and confidently draw on the Catholic intellectual tradition, my own faith commitments. And so within that context, I think what I would say is that we should have more faith in fiction itself. That if fiction in, is doing what it's supposed to be doing as a genre and revealing in fullness and complexity the nature of the human person and human persons in conflict with each other and within themselves, that in, in so doing... When we, when we arrive at ultimate questions, the capacity of religious believers and more specifically the Catholic tradition to provide answers is felt and responded to irrespective of someone's own faith commitments. Mm-hmm. I can remember chatting with a South Asian secular journalist shortly after Original Print was published and she was interviewing me for... Uh, a South Asian news place in relation to my being a Sri Lankan Catholic here in Toronto. And she said that she was so happy that original print began with a family going to church on New Year's Day in a kind of crappy part of East End ethnic Toronto. 
And the way she put it was something like, you know, it was so great to read about brown people and religion where it's not, you know, it's not monks floating in trees, right? There's nothing exotic about this, that it would be, uh, pardon the pun, but in bad faith to pretend in 21st century Toronto that religious experience is mystical and exotic. No, it's every day for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of non-white believers, most many of them Christian, Catholic specifically, right? So I think normalizing that, it kind of goes back to your earlier question about, about writing about the here and now, you know, normalizing that is important. Now there's a, there's a bit of a divide though that plays out. I can think of one friend of mine who, you know, broke my heart by saying to me, you know, right, I really wanted to invite you to my book club, but I couldn't because my book clubs, you know, they're mostly secular people. And I said, well, why couldn't you invite me to your book club? She said, because there's so many Catholic in-jokes in your fiction that I want to talk to you about, and I couldn't do it in front of them because they wouldn't get it. You probably got a lot of them, Jen, in terms of certain yeah. kinds of Catholic mm-hmm. family jokes, mm-hmm. Catholic practice jokes. But my, my response to that, again, would be sort of, but you can tell when you're a serious reader that there's a depth because of those jokes, right? You don't get them, but you know that it tells you something. It discloses something fuller than merely a surface-level representation of something. The Catholic mm-hmm. tradition provides that. Mm-hmm. And... The final point, and by no means am I making an analogy here, but I say this often in a course I teach at U of T called the Gilson Seminar on Faith and Ideas. One of the things I say at the beginning of that class is I, I open it by pointing out to students, uh, it's a class that applies the Catholic intellectual tradition to the relationship between faith and ideas when it comes to politics, the arts, ecology, and science. And I say at the beginning, um, no one can begin any sentence as a Catholic because that's not a publicly available claim. You're, you're rooting your claim in your experience in a way that, that prevents others from engaging it with the fullness that a university classroom deserves. Mm-hmm. At the same time, what if you're not Catholic and we're, ex- we're you know, explicitly moving through the Catholic intellectual tradition to, to pose these questions, to seek these answers? And then I do a straw poll and I say, who here thinks that the, thinks that the Sistine Chapel is only for Catholics? And everybody just laughs at the idea. Mm-hmm. And as you full well know, as our listeners know, the Sistine Chapel fulfills a very specific function in the life of the Catholic Church, especially when it comes to papal succession. Those two things are not in conflict. The Sistine Chapel is available to everyone, and it has this very specific function specific to this one religion. And those two things have, a, I think, a causal, a meaningful causal relationship to, to each other. If it was just a place with a bunch of pretty paintings, no one would visit it. If it was just mm-hmm. a chapel where some leaders elected, no one would visit it. It's mm-hmm. that combination, and I think that's what we seek in going kind of as full as we can in our in our creating things like novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, I completely agree. I want to ask you about your critics, that is to say mm-hmm. the critical reception of sure. your work. Do you feel like there's a difference between kind of the Catholic criticism and the secular criticism, or do you think it's all of a par. That is to say, do you mm. think your Catholic audience gets what you're doing better or not? That's a great question. I think my answer is that what I'm doing, and I can see this in the, in the, in the diversity of critical responses to my work, what I'm doing, I think, I'm grateful so far, that it sustains multiple responses. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there is a full Catholic response but then there are people who are interested in me as a South Asian writer. There are people that are interested in me as a comic novelist. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's overlap. 
Mm-hmm. But my worry would be if I was only read and responded to in one of those categories, something's not working because just one of those categories doesn't reflect the fullness of my intentions as a writer or who I am as a person or who the readers are mm-hmm. as people, right? Mm-hmm. So I think there are certainly, absolutely parts of my work that Catholic readers respond to more strongly, get a little more, I guess you could say. But that's not singular. I'm, you know, there's probably a whole Dante response that isn't necessarily Catholic. There's, there's mm-hmm. the academic fiction context, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these different ways that people can respond to the books. And I think my gratitude is that um, it's not only one to the exclusion of the other, but it's a, more of a both-and situation. Mm-hmm. So both of these books, um, Original Prin and Dante's Indiana, they remind me of Love in the Ruins. Mm. I and the re- and and to be honest, Prin in lots of ways <laughs> reminds me of Dr. Thomas More <laughs> in those mm-hmm. books. I mean, uh, just in that. You know, you have this obviously partly autobiographical character for mm-hmm. for Walker Percy, who's sort of a mouthpiece for a lot of Walker Percy's views, but yes. it's not in any way didactic or preachy. It's this really wild, mm-hmm. hilarious somewhat absurd adventure that he goes on that has like these supernatural elements um and then of course there's the conceit that dr thomas moore is by his own account crazy (laughs) (laughs) and and but you 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 get this kind of really biting social commentary Mm -hmm. and it's all nestled within this broader kind of religious reflection on Mm -hmm. the nature of sin and self-knowledge and things like this are so that i just want to ask like are you a fan of walker percy and do do you think that was in any way an influence or so so now jen is salman rushdie because i've never (laughs) read love in the ruins oh that's hilarious it's uh, his but best. of course, of course. See, no, I would disagree. I love the moviegoer, and I have read the moviegoer way too many times, perhaps. I, I almost don't want to read it now. I wonder if it's a novel for a younger person at this stage. Mm-hmm. But um, I worried, I guess, sometimes, you've just perhaps persuaded me otherwise, that, that Percy's fiction took more of an ideological turn later in his career and was perhaps a little too um, purposeful. But maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe what you're You should read Love in the Ruins. It's yeah, I guess really, I should. yeah, I think it's his best. Um, yeah, okay. I will, I yeah. will. I mean, I will the, the, I think some of his later works, like Thanatos Syndrome, I think is a disaster. I don't know if yeah, you read that yeah. one. No, no, no. But, but I've read a, enough about it to kind of steer clear, perhaps. Yeah, it's not good. But anyway, but Love in the Ruins, I'll stand behind no, no, it. Anyway. Let me just say, based on your description, though, based on your description, I think the idea that there's a, it's the productive gap between who Percy is and who his protagonist is that that good things happen in, right? And as long as there is that gap when you're writing autobiographical fiction, then you can be ambitious, provocative, take some chances, and hope for the best. Yeah, let me. Um, this this will. I I know we need to wind down because of time, but what can I ask about? I guess like maybe how the supernatural enters into your fiction because there Mm -hmm. are moments in these stories where you know things are sufficiently weird that Mm -hmm. you kind of wonder or or things are 
Um, like there are a couple of moments, especially in Dante's Indiana, where I was like, wait, mm-hmm. was that real? <laughs> or right. what? Um, and I'm wondering what you are trying to do in those moments where um, it's not quite clear what exactly reality we're in. Well, I, I think it is the case that we all have these moments in our lives, inside and outside of churches, let's say, where something cannot be reduced and explained in rational terms. And we have to find ways to name and make sense of those experiences. And sometimes these can be mystical experiences. Sometimes they can be darker. And I imagine what you're describing, especially in Dante's Indiana, are a couple of uh, darker moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. there's a presence. Where maybe like a devil shows up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's a. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say a presence that that, mm-hmm. that, that feels evil. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the key here is something that my my editor said about the original print novels that has carried through Dante's Indiana. He said at one point, Randy, uh, the problem he had with the second draft of original print when it was only 300 pages was he said, this kind of speaks to the Percy point, there's too much in here that it smells and bells and opinions about Pope Francis. There's no, there's no felt sense that Prynne believes in God. And what he said was, he, my editor said, I don't believe in God, but as a reader, I need to believe that Prynne believes in God mm-hmm. for the stakes of the story to matter. Mm-hmm. So if you believe in God, if you believe in God as we, as we would as Catholics, uh, well, then we also acknowledge the existence of evil and, and the the possibility for the embodied presence of evil, mm-hmm. not only sin, but actual malevolence as something more than the absence of the good, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are a couple of moments in Dante's Indiana where, in all seriousness, it, it, in that moment in the story, there was a, a presence of evil that made sense in the context of what was going on in the story, what was going on for print at that point. Again, it raises the stakes, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of how we respond. If it's only a question, let's say, of mental illness or only a question of interpersonal conflict, well, then it's it's answerable. It's easy to reduce and make sense of, as as messy or complicated as it might be. But what if it's those things and something else? How do you make sense of that something else? And as a writer, you know, again, that's that's rich imaginative territory to explore. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so final question. Since I and Salman Rushdie, Mm. I've never started a sentence that way before, both have kind of misunderstood maybe what the influence Productively misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've sort of mislocated the major influences for these novels. So so what what are your major influences? I mean, can, can you... Can you identify them, or is that the wrong question to ask? No, I, I, I think it, it's a, a reasonable question to ask. And, and the point is, I've read, I've read a lot of Nabokov. So it makes sense that maybe Salman Rushdie saw something in there that was Nabokovian. Mm-hmm. I've read primarily the movie gore, but I've read Walker Percy for, you know, for 20 years. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, right? I've read about Walker Percy. For 20 mm-hmm. years. I've read a book Nabokov for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's this great 
uh, Borges' essay called Kafka and His Predecessors. And it's the ways in which Kafka brought writers together who otherwise have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. But suddenly they become kind of uh, precursors to Kafka. They, they, they come into relationship with each other because of what Kafka does with them. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's St. Augustine and Salman Rushdie, right? It's Dante, but Dante alongside, oh, I don't know, probably, you know, to some degree, Dante alongside John Irving, for mm-hmm. example, right? These different yeah. mm-hmm. pairings that come together in what I'm doing with my writing. Someone like Juno Diaz, the, a contemporary writer, is, is his work is profoundly important to my sense of, you know, how comedy and immigrant experience and family life together can, can create the grounds for a new kind of storytelling about familiar topics. So if I, you know, at any given moment, you can kind of pull from that a significant number of potential influences. And I think maybe the key here is that they're always in conversation with each other. Why? Because I am first, last, and always just like you, a reader. And so mm-hmm. something new comes in, something adjusts elsewhere, I go back to something, it expands in a different way. And so as long as it's an active, vital reading life, I will have an active, vital writing life. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay, last question. And this mm-hmm. will, um, I think I said my last question was the last question, but this will settle a longstanding Twitter dispute. Yeah. Is Nabo- You're an Americanist. Is Nabokov an American writer? Mm, yes, we can. Oh, I hate to be, I hate to be political <laughs> about this, but yes, absolutely, we can read Nabokov as an American writer. I will let Twitter know. <laughs> All right, thanks. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. anyway, Randy, thank you so much. And once, uh, yeah, and once again, I just really recommend these novels, and I'm delighted that I had a chance to read them. Thank you, sacred and profane love. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks, as always, goes to Will Dethridge, Bea Quase, and Joe Coleman for their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also support us by becoming a monthly patron. Go to patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod. Patrons enjoy many benefits like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive podcast artwork and free digital subscriptions to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. For our next episode, I will be joined by Professor Russell Hintinger to talk about St. Augustine's Confessions. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.